now. So good morning everybody, welcome to another Academic Archers Saturday Omnibus. Um, thank you as ever for everybody that has donated. It really means a lot to us and it really helps us keep the lights on, um, the Academic Archers lights on. Um, and thank you everybody also who bought conference tickets and have also put in a little extra there so we can help support people with some bursary places as well. So even though you're doing things on Zoom, it doesn't come at a zero cost. Um, and we, we, we recognize totally that it might be out of some people's budgets. So that really does help. And I have a little list of people there that want bursary places. So you're helping out already. We have one of my favorites ever today. Um, and I am beyond excited on this one, but I am going to hand over to Nicola to do the formal introductions, but if you've not heard this one, it's brilliant. <laughs> yep, you're in for a treat, peeps. Um, I welcome, uh, by the way, waving from tier three in Greater Manchester as usual. I know that we're nearly all in tier three due to the brilliance of this government, but, um, and also one more um, parish notice, um, Cara mentioning the next book. Our wonderful editor of the last three has moved, been promoted basically, moved away from us. Jen McCall, who many of you have met because she's been in and around, she came to Hay and she's done things with us. So, and she's a very recently married lady. So we've got a new editor to break in. So we're going to make sure she comes into the group. We'll, um, we'll flag her. What was her name, Cara? I've completely forgotten immediately. We've, we've both <laughs> She's called what? Kimberly. 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 Yes. We only met She's... her the other day. Well, I know, but you know me. So, um, yes, Kimberly will be joining us in the group. So everybody be extremely kind to her. And you know the drill. If we need peer reviews for the new um, for the new book, we move amongst you silently because obviously that's still a, a, a double blind peer reviewed process. If you're ever asked to review the manuscripts, then you obviously you do so, um, you know, to keep the integrity of the process. Speaking of integrity, we have got amongst us an extremely um, important professor, Maggie Bartlett, this morning. Her website is frankly intimidating, so I'm going to read from it. She's a clinical professor in teaching and scholarship at the University of Dundee and has a long and uh, impressive uh, range of roles, but including working a lot with, with GPs and working for the General Medical Council. So she's a really senior doctor and... Um, for those of you who weren't able to join us in Reading, as Cara said, I think this is um, an absolute academic culture's highlight. So I pass you over to the eminent professor for her views on uh, the ontology of the silence. Thanks, Maggie. Thank you very much. That's um, a lovely introduction um, and made me blush. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, so um, what I'm going to do today is a, is a rerun, really, of the presentation that I did back in February in the pre-COVID era, which does seem like a different life. Um, there is a little bit of new material in this, so it's not exactly the same presentation as I did before. Um, so I'm going to upload, uh, try and share the screen so that you can see my slides, and then we'll get going. Okay. Okay, so can everybody see the, the slides? Is that okay? Got it. Thank you, Maggie. Brilliant. Lovely. So, um, 
Um, I'm Maggie Bartlett. I'm from the University of Dundee School of Medicine. Um, and I'm uh, talking to you here in incredibly bright sunshine all of, a, all of a sudden, which is quite unusual for the east coast of Scotland um, at this time of year. So if you suddenly, if I suddenly uh, go sort of ultra shiny, it's because the sun's moved around and it's shining directly on my face. Um, so this study is, uh, the title is, it's a divided village. Um, and it's a narrative study using the theoretical lens of speculative, speculative ontology, which I'll go into in a little bit more detail in a minute. So as an introduction, we all know that Ambridge is a, a village somewhere <clears throat> in the middle of England. Um, and we know that the population of it is pretty stable, although the Beechwood development might have brought a few more people in recently. Um, and I, I have it on good authority that the population of Ambridge is around about 700. And the authority I have for this is the British Medical Journal. Um, so I'm inclined to believe it. Um, and that was a study done back in 2011 that, that produced that number. Um, and we do know that there are around about 70 named and voiced characters. Um, and my um, estimation of, of the population of people whose names we know, but we never hear speak, was about 10. But when we when this uh, when I presented this back in February, that number was vigorously challenged um, by the audience who thought that there were more than 10 people who have have names but don't speak. But the, the BBC website, um, it doesn't really help much on that. It only uh, confirms around about the 10 or so. And there are some notably missing people from the ones on the BBC website. So Mr. Pullen isn't there. Nathan Booth isn't there. Sabrina Thwaites not there, and the Button children aren't there. But there's a third group of people who we don't know their names and we don't hear from them. Um, and we know they must exist because a village with 700 people, in, um, you know, that there are plenty of other people there. And, and we know there's, um, there's a pub, we know there's a veterinary surgery, we know there's a riding stables, there's a church, there are two shops, the community shop and the bridge farm shop. So there must be the customers, the school children, the patrons at the pub, the people who have their horses in livery. And all of those people are there milling about, but we don't hear from them. Um, and I was very interested in that group of people um, and, and their own perceptions of their, their being, which is the ontological aspect. So my intention was to explore the sense of being, the ontological position of the unnamed and unvoiced group of characters that we know exist. So my method, um, I went for purposive sampling. I didn't want a random group. Um, I very much wanted to have a representative group of people who, who were unnamed and unvoiced. Um, I did think it would probably unfair to interview people who were younger than 16. So that was a criterion for being involved. And I was looking to interview two groups with eight people in each group. Now, there was a bit of a, a challenge here because I was very much aware that if I involved certain prominent people in the village in the recruitment of my sample, there may have been an introduction of bias. Um, and the person I was thinking of particularly um, is, is um, someone I'm very fond of, which is Linda, who is Linda Snell. <clears throat> Um, and this is pre the explosion at, at Grey Gables, we need to remember. Um, and I didn't really want to involve Linda at all in the recruitment because I didn't think I would end up with a representative or unbiased sample. 
So that involved a bit of subterfuge, um, which felt um, uncomfortable in research to be excluding people or to be um, being a little bit um, uh, manipulative in a way. But in order to get an unbiased sample, I thought that was probably acceptable for this project. So the intention, as I said, was to have two focus groups um, and to interview them uh, or, or to have the focus group meetings um, and then explore their lived experience. Uh, and so that's what this phenomenological approach was about, to, to find out about their lived experience. So I wasn't looking for universal truths or generalizations, but just what these particular people were experiencing by being unnamed and unvoiced in Ambridge. So the approach to the analysis was interpretive. So it was about listening to what was said and trying to interpret it in a way that um, excluded my own personal biases. Um, and the theoretical lens for doing this is um, speculative ontology, which I truly thought I'd invented for this um, purpose, but actually it is um, a recognized approach to research. Um, and it's a kind of metaphysical thing where you can't prove scientific truths using scientific, biological scientific methods. It's more about interpretation and um, trying to extract information from data which is interpretable rather than being rather than being um, firm and solid. So the themes were identified from the data. So I didn't start off with some particular themes I wanted to explore. It was a question of getting the data, starting to read it and think about it, um, and then um, pull some themes out of the data. At this point, I just want to say a little bit about ethics, uh, which was again a challenging approach, a uh, challenging aspect of this work, because formal ethical review panels um, are a bit iffy about people that they perceive to be fictional um, and wouldn't really entertain the idea of going through the ethical process for not only a, a potentially fictional setting, but people within that setting who are unnamed and unvoiced. It caused a lot of problems. Um, and as I said back in February, when I pushed this a bit, I did find myself having a, an interesting conversation with a colleague who was a psychiatrist um, and I'm not sure if that was a coincidence that that conversation happened or not. Um, so this work was done without formal ethical approval. So we come on to results. Um, and I thought this was really interesting. I, mean, I didn't choose the people because of their um, uh, occupations particularly, but I was keen to get a cross section uh, of, of the, 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 the traditional social classes um, here And as you can see, I think that was uh, achieved. Um, so we've got uh, some actually some very interesting uh, occupations here and particularly ones that you wouldn't necessarily expect with, to, to be gendered in the way that they are here. And which I think shows that Ambridge is probably a pretty, um, a, a pretty advanced kind of community really. So if you look down the left-hand side, we've got where all, all the people who self-identified as female are um, and the, their occupations that they described themselves um, and their ages. So I think there's a good age range. Um, and you can see we've got um, a granny providing childcare, um, a midwife, a bus driver, a refuse collection operative, a self-employed spinner and dyer, an 
airline pilot on maternity leave, a junior hospital doctor and an apprentice narrowboat builder. So a proportion of those are occupations that we might more traditionally associate with, with men than women. And likewise, if we look at the other list, which are the male, the male participants, uh, we've got a retired jelly baby maker, um, a primary school teacher, an electrical engineer, a llama farmer, a synchronized swimmer, a district nurse, an artificial inseminator, and a giblet processor at the chicken factory. So again, we've, we've got um, a couple of these who um, are in careers that you wouldn't necessarily associate with, with men. So coming on to the results, I think from the data, well, from the data, I did identify three main themes, which I'll talk about now with the evidence behind them. So the first theme was that there appeared to be an existential codependence. Um, and the, uh, the conversation I'm going to put up will demonstrate that. So the first person is saying they need us. How could there be a shop with no customers? And we need them. Where would we be without them? I'm not sure where we would be, but it's not like the Truman Show, is it? So there's a little bit of doubt here. Um, and for those of you who don't know about the Truman Show, it's, um, it's a film where the main character is the only real person and everybody else around him, are, they're all actors and he's in an artificial world. So his whole life is being manipulated by the producers of the film, uh, of the show that he's in, um, and he doesn't know it until the end. But then another participant comes in and says, well, it's more like the chicken and the egg, really. So it's not clear which came first to, to them. They don't know whether they're there because of the, the, the Archers show or whether the Archers is there because of them or whether the voiced and named exist because of the other groups or whether they exist because of the voiced and named groups. I mean, and the other thing that's interested in this is, is a sort of um, uncertainty about the whole driver and, and life behind their existence. So they go on to say, Bridge Farm, they need us. Think of all the things that wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. Sorry, I can't see the end of what I'm reading because of the uh, little um, squares in the corner. So the ends are dipping off when I read them out, but you can see them. Think of all the things that wouldn't have happened if there wasn't the tea room. And the tea room needs customers too. Bit pricey in the farm shop though. And then the next participant says, yeah, both too pricey for me. I go to Aldi on the bypass. Means I meet, meet, miss out on stuff, but I, at least I don't get caught in the crossfire. So you can start to see that there's a desire to stay out of the limelight from some of these participants. And that's because they're worried about what's going to happen to them if they become voiced and named. Yeah. Um, so moving on to theme two, there was quite a lot of um, evidence that there was some resentment building about their situation. And the participants had, uh, they aspired to have a voice, but actually they were quite frightened of having a voice because of the things that they perceived might happen to them if they did. So you can see here, sorry, I'm just going to try. Oh, that's better. Um, when anything happens to one of them, there's a big hoo-ha, lots of sympathy and casserole. When my Pearl died, it would have been nice to have had a mention. She was a friend of Jill Archer and there was nothing. She could have brought me a casserole and I could have said how hard it was. I could have had one just, just one little sentence. 
And then the, the, the reply comes back here from um, one of the younger participants. Yeah, but if you did, nothing would be simple then. You'd have had to be depressed or your Jerry would have gone off the rails or you'd be burgled during the funeral or fall in love with somebody really awful. And the third one says, probably not worth it really, the risk, just for a moment of being. And here we come back to this idea of ontology. I like a quiet life, safely off their radar. I'm happy just to roar in the bull once in a while. So for this participant, they, he, he gets a lot from having his voice heard, but in a very anonymous way, which I think is quite interesting. And then we have another conversation in this same theme from the other focus group um, about resentment and aspiration. And this, this is uh, this resentment's building here. When good things happen, they don't come up in the gossip. When our Lyra won that medal, they could have talked about that. Things to be proud of in the village and just to mention wouldn't do any harm. And here comes another one. Yeah, and when I got that contract for Borsetshire land, you want to be careful what you wish for there, mate. There'll be trouble sooner or later with that lot. I'd say you'd been for something really bad once they knew who you were, then you'd be really screwed. So this is very interesting that there's a mistrust here of, of, of um, the, uh, the landowners and, and we're sort of straying into the class and power territory here. Um, and there's this rather plaintive comment um, from, the, from another participant. It would be nice just now and then to be a little bit known. Not enough for bad things to happen. Them not knowing anything about you when they know so much about the others. And it's hard having to wait so long to get served in the shop or the bull because that Jim Lloyd's having a rant or Kenton and Jolene are having some kind of drama when all you want is a quick loaf or a G&T. I feel like a second class citizen. No, actually a third class citizen sometimes. So here we've got a reference um, to a sort of parallel class system being perceived by the participants where the named and voiced are the first class, the named and unvoiced are the second class, and the unnamed and unvoiced may be being perceived as, as, as the, the, lower, the lowest of the classes. The third theme is an interesting one where quite a lot of empathy is expressed for the named and unvoiced. And, and this is very clearly expressed in this first statement. The thing is, the minute they know who you are, you're in for something. That's the price you pay. And what I think is interesting about this statement is there's this they. And it's really not clear throughout the whole project who this they is. We don't know if it's the, um, the BBC or if it's the um, script writers or if it's the audience. Um, and one of the things I was wondering was if this is some sort of conflated theistic force um, of, of, the, of the creator, but they're not able really to specify who their creator is. But there's just this rather mysterious they out there that they um, realize that their lives are directed by. So the next participant comes in and says, yeah, or you get taken the mickey of. Yeah, like poor old Mr. Pullen. Yeah, or that woman Alistair Lloyd slept with a while back. And you don't get to say anything about it at all. What about the Button Girls? They're at risk, I'd say. Do you think their parents know? Should we make sure they do? We should do something. And here you can see it's the first seeds of some sort of rebellion, um, that it's unfair that some people 
um, are named and unvoiced and so bad things happen to them and they've got no uh, right of uh, response or self-defense or being able to explain themselves in any way, stand up for themselves. Um, and, and then this, this last response is really very interesting that um, somebody's saying, no, 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 we can't, we can't do that. That's not right at all. They really don't think they've got any power here to intervene in this situation um, and, and want to leave things um, as they are. And again, this starts to, to, to be an issue perhaps of, of a sense of power or powerlessness. So this is um, some more information on that theme that came from the second focus group. I'm sorry, there's quite a lot on this slide, it's quite small. Um, but this is, they start to talk about Frida Fry, who I'm sure everybody here remembers as being um, an unvoiced but named character who died um, in very emotional circumstances linked to the flood, um, which uh, Rob, Rob Titchener was um, so involved in. Um, and that's quite unusual for an, a named and unvoiced character for them to have something so major happen to them. They, they tend to be the, the, the named and voiced that have these things happen. But I guess in this, in this situation, it was Bert, Frida's husband, who was named and voiced, who was the main character. And so perhaps what happened to Frida was really actually happening to Bert. Um, and this, this is an interesting um, uh, discussion, I think, this one. So it was Frida Fry I felt sorry for. She had to put up with Bert's poems all those years and never got a chance to let off steam about it. And TR is an airline pilot, which is um, significant, uh, as you'll see later on. And, and then she goes on to say, yeah, and then she had to die. So nobody will ever know how she felt about the poems or anything, really. She was going to die. Would anyone have told her? That would be hard, but they must have known. So they should have. Um, and AM is a junior doctor, so has, has got some, obviously, some very strong opinions about um, how people are communicated with when they're, uh, when they're towards the end of their lives. Um, but again, this rebellion is, is growing here, that there's this uh, resentment that um, a, a character is being manipulated or directed by this unknown force, and, and it's not fair. So PO comes in described herself as a granny uh, doing childcare, but actually Pio, before she retired, was a, a vet. And Pio says, yes, then if it was me, I'd have insisted. One little speech is what I'd have demanded. Just before the end, I'd want everyone to know I was proud of his poems. If I was, that is, which I suspect she wasn't actually. That's probably why they didn't tell her and why she wasn't allowed to speak. But we and they don't know if she was or not. No one can ever know that now, and that's really sad. Yes, and really, really unfair. I don't want that to happen to me. What can we do about it? So again, there's this urge coming through to, to intervene, to, to make a difference to, to the situation. But then you'll see, uh, again, uh, a pulling back from that in the last bit. You wanna leave that alone. It'll just mean trouble for you and your little one. And just think about what you do for a living. Plenty of drama possible there. So this character is, um, sorry, my cuckoo clock's just going off. So, so this char character is uh, referring to the fact that TR is an airline pilot um, and seeing that if, if she 
becomes, uh, if they, this theistic force, become aware of her, then the chances are something dramatic is going to happen to her, um, which would be terrible. Um, and the other thing that I think is interesting here is, is that this, this particular uh, interaction is generally between women, um, and it's a man that comes in at the end. But these women are all women who are in uh, or have been in careers that are generally uh, male dominated. Um, and it's interesting that they are the ones that are starting to express some feeling of empowerment or desire to change the situation that they're in. So bringing it all together, the unnamed and unvoiced population of Ambridge do exist in this state of ontological tension. Um, in that they don't really know why they're there and why they're not uh, given a voice um, and why they're not even named um, and whether they've got the potential power to do anything about it or whether that would just um, mess things up for them. Um, so there's this perceived existential codependence with the other two groups, the uncertainty about the nature of their existence. Um, and they do wish to be known to exist and to be heard, but they are quite scared of what this might mean to them because it might mean bad things happen to them. Um, and what we do know is that if people are under long-term stress, which I think this existential ontological uncertainty probably uh, leads to, um, if they're under long-term stress, it does have impacts on well-being in terms of cardiovascular health and uh, the immune system. Um, and uh, general enjoyment of life. So what I think this study raises is a question about the creator's moral responsibility for this group. Um, and given that we do know uh, when the, this, this situation, when the village itself was created, which was back in 1951, and who created it, we perhaps know who has this moral responsibility in a way that the participants of the study uh, don't know. But there's another conclusion here that, that I've been mulling over a little bit, and that is that I wonder if there's going to be some sort of more definite rebellion here. Um, and that'll be an interesting example of a research project leading to a change in a stable setting. Um, and then I start to feel a bit guilty about that because um, I do wonder what's going to happen in Ambridge if this um, takes hold and these unnamed and unvoiced characters do start to rebel and what effect that'll have on the, the village that we know and love. And I'm going to leave it there, and I'm very happy to answer questions or get involved in any kind of discussion about, about this work. It's, it's just wonderful, Maggie. It's an absolute stroke of genius, what you have, have created here. It is amazing. Um, I wanna go to Sarah Playfair's first question. In, there's been a little bit of chat about um, how the silence chat. Um, so Sarah, could you unmute yourself and, and ask your, your question? I'm trying to remember what my first question is because I've been <laughs> chatting. Which was the one? The one about um, how do they meet up? Oh yes, do the unvoiced of Ambridge hold regular meetings is what I said. It does sound like they communicate with each other or at least um, and support each other. <laughs> Yes, I, I don't think they have meetings in a formal sense. I mean, they do meet each other as they go about their business um, around the village. So that they, they, they don't have a kind of um, 
Facebook group or anything like that. They're well, just someone, yeah, somebody suggested a WhatsApp group. <laughs> Um, yes, no, because it does. I mean, they've often worried me a lot, but I kind of like to think of them sitting in a corner of the bull or in the tea rooms, having a good old catch up and, and moaning about everybody who actually is heard or at least known of. Yes, well, I suspect after this study, they perhaps feel a bit more empowered to, to do yes. that kind of meeting. Yes. But certainly leading up to the to the study, they hadn't they hadn't perceived themselves as, as necessarily a, a group that needed to come together in that way. Thank you. Thank you. It's, a great, it's a great paper. I loved it. It's fantastic. As Claire Asprey said as well, maybe the focus groups were the catalyst for them to begin to organise. Mm -hmm. Since lockdown, they may have had a lively WhatsApp group. So I, I think your, your concerns here about their insurgent mobilisation, Maggie, could be, could be borne out, actually. Yes, well, I, I think it's it's not unlikely, um, but obviously as a researcher, I couldn't ask to join their group or really continue to have any involvement with, involvement with them. So I'm very much uh, distancing myself from it. So I wonder if the sort of um, organic social organisation models that we've explored with the prefects, so maybe they just need somebody like Catherine Hoskins, who's who's uh, able to catalyze that kind of, um, you know, informal but supportive environment kind of, you know. They can all go on a holiday to New Zealand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the only other location apart from Birmingham that ever gets preferenced. But only after, only after New Zealand starts letting people in, of course. <laughs> but if they're silent, they might be able to sneak through the border and nobody would see them. I mean, that is a very interesting point because um, silence, I mean, possibly they do have other more supernatural or, um, or special characteristics to make up for their lack of voice. What do you think about that, Maggie? Um, yes, I, I guess um, supernatural. I, I'm not sure I quite like to go there, really. I think we should keep them as real people um, with just ordinary, ordinary attributes. I do wonder if some of them, though, may have a um, a more finely developed sense of hear, you know, hearing, because obviously they're on the alert, aren't they, constantly about who might be coming towards them, who's around them, not wanting to get implicated into certain situations. So there is that stress on the well-being for them for that, being in this constant vigilant state. But I wonder if they have more, you know, highly developed hearing because of that. Or maybe their sight is better as well. Maybe they need to be able to see people on the long range more than we would in our normal day-to-day -day here. Yes, well, that, that's, that's a good suggestion. I certainly think that the hypervigilance is there. So I, I, I think that, that um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not ever being able to relax. Anxiogenic. Um, Yes, a degree of kind of frozen awareness that they're always on the on the alert. So some sort of um, enhanced senses would be very useful for that. Um, but but I think there's there's usually enough going on quite loudly in Ambridge for them to be able to pick up stuff. So Karen has arrived, having collected her Christmas venison, to ask philosophical question of the day: Does silent mean invisible? Well, they're not si they're not silent. They're just unheard. Yeah, that's a very good, very good point. 
Um, and and none of, I guess, really for all of us, all of the characters in the arches are invisible because we don't see them, do we? So um, I, I think it's it's the voice here that's the, the key thing um, rather than the visibility. Audibility. So the, we had a paper um, at the British Library but from Becky Wood about the silence, which was all about... Um, which took it in quite a different direction. It might be quite interesting to revisit that one, actually. We haven't put it into dialogue with the... But obviously there's the ethical point, because that was quite a philosophical piece, and you've actually got your empirical data. So, I mean, there is no thing about, you know, you know your focus group work and, uh, and a more, more, you know, more speculative piece might not match in terms of uh, methods and uh, epistemology. Claire, do you want, Claire Asprey, do you want to... Um... Do you want to ask Maggie your housing question? I wonder whether that came up in any of the focus groups, but might not have, you know, made it through to the data stage. Of what oh you yeah, yeah, that would be great. Um, I mean, I want to say thank you to Maggie because, um, like, I really remember this session from Reading, and it had been. I think it came straight after. Um, it was Gary's session, which was like, you know sort of rip-roaring and exciting and loud. And this was very understated, but it had us rolling by the end of it. It was so funny. Um, and, and I was just, I just, it stayed in me, my memory so strongly. And so when I was writing up my chapter on housing for the um, Flapjacks and Feudalism book, um, the thing that I couldn't get my head around is, why do we need the Ambridge Ferry for housing purposes? Because actually in a normal village of 700 people a portion of those homes come on the market every year and, and and are available and yet we never hear there are unnamed unknown homes in Ambridge in the same way because the, they're the places where these people live mm -hmm. um, and so it, it gave me pause to think about why none of those homes seem to come available for anyone we only ever have the homes that we already know about, they are the only ones that count for any of the voiced characters. So they it's like they can only move into each other's homes and they're very rarely any new ones, even though we know that they're there and we know that any number of them must come available in any one year. Like how many of the council houses around the Green are still council houses, for example, and why hasn't any of them become available to let while in all the years that Emma's been looking? Uh, not that she would have put herself on the list because she's hunkering off to buy a house. But anyway, it's it's those kind of things that make me really think about, you know, no one ever talks about the other unknown, unnamed homes in the village where these unknown, unnamed people live. And it is like a third class because like, it's like no one would consider ever going there. And, and the fairy doesn't seem to make those ones available. It generally makes the homes available that we already knew about except for the random council farms and things like that. <laughs> but there was, um, there's occasionally mention of, is it Glebelands or, or there's, there's a, some sort of estate uh, there that, that does get mentioned from time to time. Um, but, but you're right, you, you don't, there's no, there's no ever, never any discussion about all oh, that houses on Glebelands has come up for sale or, or anything. There's a bit, of, a bit of it around Beechwood, but that was, that was very linked to Emma, wasn't it? I suppose uh, Kirsty as well. I think Beechwood is a fascinating thing because having been involved in that kind of rural development before, there would definitely be more than just two houses built. So it's definitely more than Philip. Isn't Beechwood the, the kingdom they of were, the you know, Yeah, to make their margins, they would have had to have 
put some more um, things in. I just want to very quickly say to Claire, though, we've come on, we've all as researchers of Ambridge come unstuck with this before, but you, you use that classic word of normal. In a normal village, it would be like this. And of course, we can't apply that to the Ambridge situation. And it does make data collection and hypothesis really, really difficult to our study. Nicola, were you going to say something? I was just saying um, in response to your, I've completely, I've completely forgotten now because I'm now, oh yes, isn't Beechwood where the Thwaites are and the Buttons? No. Where are the Thwaites, Felicity? You're very clear. I think they're in Glebelands. I think they're in Glebelands. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's what, sorry, that's what I meant. Glebelands is where the Thwaites and the yeah. Buttons are. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Are the Buttons there as well? I've always thought Glebelands was a slightly more poncy development <laughs> rather than the Buttons. Interesting point. The Buttons ain't no ponces. But, and also in Beechwood, wasn't there some um, mention at some point a few months ago about badly behaved families in Beechwood? Yes, there was. You're right. And Claire's just put into the chat, uh, Beechwood had 18 homes. Yeah. And there's certainly yes. some, I lot. think it was some Tony or somebody was complaining about the behaviour of kids. Oh, I yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think I always imagined that the buttons would be living in one of the council houses on the green. Yeah. Oh, interesting. We've got, uh, we've got a difference in button opinion. Because yeah, I the, think they're new by Claire's I, saying I, they're, yeah. they're posh but rowdy. Yeah. Oh, I, I've never thought they were nouveau riche, but since we've never actually met Mr. and Mrs. Button, <laughs> as I say, that, they may, of course, only be a Mr. or Mrs. Button. It may be a one parent family. We don't even know that. No, Sarah, there has been mention of there being two parents and they actually run, they run a, a mushroom farm. Oh. No, they don't. They do. <laughs> no. Yeah, they do. How do you know that? I, a few years back. Oh, Are you sure. sure it's not because of button mushrooms? No, yeah, no. no Sally's oh, saying something button different. Button the county fungi officer. What? Borchester, Borchester County Council fungi officer. Who's talking right now? Me. Sally. Sally. Oh, Sally's yes. there, yeah. Are you serious? Yes. God, the fungi It officer. has been said. He was on Susan's radio programme back in September. No. Oh, that recently? Yes, How can we all not know? I missed no, that. No, he was. She mentioned it. Listen, Why listen. Why up on all these little tiny bits? Sally is never wrong, but the fact that the rest of us are all totally oblivious. S say it again, just for just for the tape. Mr. Mr. Button. Mr. Button is the county, Borsetshire County fungi officer. Well, I mean, it's all very well and good, but what about the, <laughs> the jelly baby maker? <laughs> Oh, well, the, the jelly baby maker, well, he, he definitely lives on Glebelands. <laughs> definitely. He's got a nice little bungalow right at the end. Good. Well, I don't know if Do any of them live in Beechwood. Completely slipped. Sarah, please. No. Sorry, I was just saying, do any of them live in Beechwood? Um, yeah, yes, I think the, um, the airline pilot does live there. Ooh. Um, and, in, and in fact, the, the, the junior doctor, they live there, they're neighbours, very, very friendly with each other. Mm. Good to hear. Thank you. <laughs> it's almost like they should have the, a radio drama. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
No, I don't think that would catch on. <laughs> there, there's also the old people's um, bungalows in Manor Court. Oh, yes. That's where Mr. Pullen used to live before he died. Oh, yeah. Didn't anyone notice when um, Alice was going into detox, she said that she had Granny P's locket? Mm. Yes. I know Catherine. Catherine's not is is hopping. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I was I was about to put something into Facebook to say how would Alice end up with Granny P's locket because normally Granny P Granny P is Peggy's mother, so yeah. Peggy's mother would. Oh, you've gone oh. quiet again. The host muted me. Sorry. That was a mistake. Um, Sorry. So, so, so first of all, Peggy would have had to decide whether Jennifer or Lillian got it. Yeah. And then once Jennifer got it, because then she'd have to decide which of the daughters got it. And why would you give it to Alice? Wouldn't Alice you normally give it? Alice stole it from her? Jennifer. This needs backing up with uh, with proof. She stole it. Well, because I, you, I, you'd normally it would go to an older daughter, not to Alice. I heard that too, and I, I my ears pricked up, and I thought, "What's what's she doing with Granny P's locket?" Come along um, and make your case about theft. It's a uh, it's a robust uh, it's a robust uh, accusation. Yes, I think I think Debbie should have got it. I, I I would have expected the older daughter to get it. Would it not be maybe Peggy decided to give it to Alice for her wedding or something like that? I think that's perfectly possible. <laughs> I don't think but maybe maybe Granny P was dripping in diamonds. Uh, I mean, I, you just don't know. I think Alice got it because nobody else wanted it. But if she didn't, she just took it because she's that sort of person. Maybe God. maybe she was lent it for her wedding as mm. something old, and then never gave it back. I mean, nobody could have prefigured. No, her wedding was in Vegas, wasn't yeah, it? It was all, all, yeah. all um, you know. I think it's perfectly feasible that Peggy just gave it to Alice. Honestly, I don't see the problem. I think she. I think Granny P would definitely have had more than one thing. Well, I'm not sure. I don't Ooh. think she would have had too many things. I mean, she was a fairly down-to-earth woman. I don't think she would have had a huge amount of jewellery. Mm, this is a good point. Um, but, but, but once again, speculating on the um, the jewellery cabinet of uh, the long dead is would be crazy when we're actually talking about speculating on the lives and, and times of the silent and unvoiced. Yeah. So let's let's focus, people. Come on, let's not get silly now. <laughs> I do like what you said, Maggie, about the um, like you know the moral responsibility, the duty of care that they, the creators, however that might settle in those silent characters you know the, the silence mind but they do have a duty of care over this I think that's a question that we should ask Kerry when we speak to him mm -hmm. at conference actually because I don't think that would be a question that's been put to him before do they have an ethics panel at the BBC for example does this kind of question come up in their long-range planning meetings and <sighs> If it's not, then I would I would wager that actually there is something unethical there that the BBC are you know that, that they're not doing. Well, particularly um, when you connect with the safeguarding there. issues. Yeah, exactly. the safeguarding issues for the button girls if they're not yeah. being properly considered. You know. Yeah. 
we should put in an FOI if we don't get a satisfactory answer from Kerry. That's only just dawned on me, actually. Working for a public organisation, I know that all of my emails at work are public records. So I wonder if Kerry's are, <laughs> or any of the scriptwriters oh are God. as well. The poor and man. we could put in an FOI. But I also know in FOIs you can just redact pretty much everything. I might give that a go. I might that make that my next conference paper. <laughs> what, like... As in, you want a copy of the forward planning uh, matrix? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, well, where to go next? I mean, as I say, my grip on reality is, is loose this morning, people of the world. Pam, <laughs> don't speak. You're shaking your head and laughing. You've been very reactive in your tree. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will stop the recording now and uh, we're going to go into more general chatter. Oh yeah, things could really de degenerate from here. Re they could really degenerate, absolutely, I know. People listening to this was... So yeah. just last claps for the wonderful Maggie Bartlett. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Maggie. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed